0: tells us that known by God are all his works from the beginning of the creation. In other words, before God even said, let there be light in the very beginning, he already knew everything that was going to fall out from the time that he did say those words all the way through until the end. That means that when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden with a tree, that he told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God already saw Revelation chapters 6 through 19 before Adam even took the bite of that first fruit. God saw everything that would be and everything that would happen in between the bite from that fruit and the coming judgment that would culminate all of mankind's current presence upon Planet Earth. Known by God are all his works from the beginning of the creation. Now, as soon as Adam in the garden took a bite of that fruit, the wheels of God's judgment for sin began to turn. Now, here we sit, some 6,000 years on the other side of that, and we still have yet to see the culmination of all of those things. Nevertheless, God saw it from the beginning. And God is going to bring it to pass, even as he saw and even as he said. The point is that the wheels of God's justice or the process of God's word is unstoppable and it will complete as it began. And that's true not only for creation as a whole in the context of Adam and Revelation, but it's also true in a much smaller context of whether it be a nation and its lifespan and its influence or impact upon world history or whether it be for a family or whether it be in the life of an individual God sees it all at once and God sees the process of how sin and rebellion against him will decay and destroy what he intends to build up and bless now for the nation of Israel God said to them all along that their strength would always be in him that was the way that God designed them they would not be able to succeed or prosper independent of God's work or a close relationship with him. That was how he made them to be. So he told them, if you turn away from me, then that will be the beginning of your demise because that's where their strength lied. Now there are only two directions as it concerns life in the Lord. There is either forward movement or backward movement. There is no in between. It's either one or the other. And the majority of tonight's Bible study, as we resume in second Kings chapter eight, is the coming undone or the unraveling of Israel's strength and their glory. We will see many steps and stages in their slide backwards or their departure from closeness to God tonight that's ultimately going to end at the end of the book with God's judgment as he intervenes in that. And so we're going to see Israel moving quickly backwards. We're also going to see tonight that Elisha, who has been a very central figure within our study for the past several weeks as we've been looking at his life since chapter 1 all the way now through chapter 8, that we'll see him as we begin, and then we'll see him mentioned again in chapter 9, but then he will take a backseat to the drama that will now unfold, uh, and he's gonna disappear off the scene tonight for about 40 years. And he'll pop back in in a future study when we get to chapter 13 around the time that he dies. But tonight we leave Elijah, Elisha, and we will see, um, the backsliding of the nation. In it, and so um, we, we look at chapter eight tonight uh, as we begin, and so chapter eight, verse one it says, "Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go you and your household, and sojourn wheresoever you can sojourn." For the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Now you recall that Elisha, when he was on his circuit, as he would travel from Samaria and to Mount Carmel and then to Jericho and the schools of the prophets, he would frequent Dothan. And in Dothan, there was a Shunammite woman there who said to her husband, let's build an addition for the prophet when he comes through. He can stay here in our place. And so Elisha stayed there for the woman and wanted to bless her on an occasion. And so he said to his servant, what should we do for this woman? And he said, well, she has no child. And so Elisha says, that's perfect. And so he tells the woman, you're going to conceive and bear a son. And she does. She has miraculous uh, conception in, in her old age, her husband being old. And God gives to her a son. But when that son was just a young man, a grown child, really, Something happened while he was in the field, and he died unexpectedly. And so she went and she sought out Elisha, and Elisha came and prayed for the child, and the child was miraculously resurrected. He was dead, and he was brought back to life. That's the woman who it's speaking of here. And now Elisha goes back to this woman, and he says that the Lord has ordered that there will be a famine in the land for seven years. Therefore, go and find food. And so the woman arose, and she did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And so she leaves, she goes to the Philistines, that strip along the Mediterranean Sea, and she survives there. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And evidently, as she returns, what she finds is that there is some squatter or someone or a group of people that have kind of overtaken her land. And now they've barred her from having access to what is rightfully hers. But according to the law of Moses, that which is the inheritance of the children of Israel will always belong to those children of Israel. And so it says she goes to the king in verse four. And the king talked as she's coming with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Now you remember Gehazi. Remember when Naaman, the uh, the, the Syrian commander, had leprosy? And he came to Elisha and he asked if Elisha could help him out. And Elisha said dip seven times in the Jordan and he does. And he's healed and he brings money to Elisha out of thankfulness. And Elisha refuses it, doesn't want to misrepresent the grace of God in healing Naaman. And so he sends him away without receiving the gift, but but Gehazi, because he wanted the money, he craftily went after Gehazi when no one knew, and he asked for some of the money. And and, And in returning, Elisha knew about it and said, the leprosy that was upon Naaman, let it be upon you. And Gehazi was then disqualified from service to the Lord. He no longer was Elisha's servant. And now we see the same Gehazi in the palace talking with the king. And so the king talked with him and he said, tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha has done. And it came to pass that as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O oh king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. So the king wants to hear about the miracles of Elisha. And what greater miracle to tell than the raising of someone who was dead. And so Gehazi tells the story, and it just so happens Because that's the way things work, right? It just so happens that as he's telling that story, the very woman with the very child, seven years older now, come and Gehazi says, that's her. And she sees or he sees and the king says, restore now to her the land and the seven years of produce that she lost due to the famine. Thus far, as we've seen the ministry of Elisha, we have seen that it is shrouded or covered with the miraculous. Everything that he does has some kind of miraculous touch or supernatural element to it. But it's interesting to me that not so here. There's nothing miraculous about what he does at all. In fact, this almost seems out of character to me. Because every time that God has wanted to provide thus far for someone like this widow, he's done it miraculously. You remember that when Elisha went to Zarepta, he saw the widow woman there, and she was going to die because of a famine. She only had a little bit of grain left. And Elisha said, make me a little bit of bread first, before you make some for yourself and for your son, and God will sustain you. And God did. She made him a little cake, and God supernaturally caused that grain, that little bit, to last her all the way through the end of the famine, a miraculous provision. Again, there was a widow woman that came to Elisha a little bit later on, and she was indebted. Her husband had died, and the creditors were knocking on her door, and she said, I need help. They're going to take my sons away. And he said, what do you have in the house? And she said, just a little bit of oil. That's all I've got. Go borrow jars from your neighbors and Pour the oil that you 've got into those jars, and God did a miracle. He provided supernaturally oil for this woman, as many jars as she borrowed as how many jars God filled with oil, and she sold it and was able to provide for her household throughout the rest of the famine. Again, a miracle God providing, but here he doesn 't do anything miraculous here there 's a famine that 's coming upon the land, and Elisha just goes to the woman and says, "Oh hey, by the way, there 's going to be a famine, no food for seven years so pack sand and go find something to eat. And she's probably thinking, well, wait, where's the miracle? You know, you raised my son from the dead. Can't you do any better than this? What's going on? The miraculous or a miracle is God intervening or interrupting natural law to accomplish his purposes. That's what a miracle is. But miracles have a close cousin. It's called providence in the Bible. And if miracles are God bending natural law, providence is God employing or using natural law in order to uh, bring about his purposes. Now, what God wants to do for this woman is that he wants to provide for her through the famine and at the same time make sure that she doesn't lose anything because of it. That's what God wants. But he's not gonna do it this time by bringing forth a miracle. This time he's gonna do it through providence, through this whole scheme of her leaving the land for seven years and her property, and then arranging the circumstances so that the king just happens to be having a conversation with Gehazi at the time she walks in. And then the king restores not only her land, but also the seven years of loss. She doesn't lose anything um, because of this whole thing in it. Now, I believe... That for God's people, God much more often works through providence than he does through the miraculous. Now God does still do miracles today. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's far above all principalities and powers. That there's nothing that's too hard for God. He says I'm the God of all flesh. And nothing is too hard for me. But yet God likes to work through providence. That is intervening in natural circumstances in order to lead, bless, provide for, protect, whatever he's going to do for his people. He does it through providence. The very foundation of prayer that Jesus gave to us, Matthew chapter 6, we would call it the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven. Part of that prayer, he says, lead us. That's part of the prayer. And oftentimes, that's the way God likes to work within our lives. He likes to lead us. And how does God lead us? He leads us through providence, just like we see happening with this woman. Many of the promises that we have in the Bible are promises that work according to providence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. That's what he does. He directs our path. And what he's doing behind the scenes is that he's working things out so that when we get to a certain point, we see god 's hand of provision as He providentially works within our lives. He loves to do that now, I wish, and I bet you do too, that God always worked the same way every time don 't you that, that that He just like always just made the grain multiply or always caused the oil to just supernaturally appear, you know, or, or that if He did something for us once in our life like an unexpected tax refund at the opportune time that that's just always going to happen oh man the electric bills due, and i don't have the money let me just go get the mail you know because that's how god does it there's just always some we wish that that's the way he did it but he doesn't do that and that's true for our provision but it's also true for every other area of our life Even the way that we pray, the way that we have devotion times, the way that we relate, you know, the way we serve him in in, in our ministry or the way we do our job and the way God helps us in it. He never does the same thing the same way over and over and over again. Doesn't that frustrate you sometimes? I know it frustrates me. I often think I've got you pinned, God. I've finally got you in a box. I know how to pray. And then I employ my pattern and I find that my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. It's not working. You know, it doesn't work. Or I'll prepare to preach a certain way and I'll think, got it, nailed it. Man, my job's about to get easier. And then God won't work that way anymore. He won't come through. It'll just be dry and dead. What's the deal? Why does he do it? Why does he not do the same thing the same way every time? Here's why. Because he wants you to seek him. He wants us to depend on him. Not once for our life where we just say, okay, God, well, you did it and that's it. It's done, you know but where we'll go to him consistently and we'll say, God, I need you today. Lord, I need you in this situation. Lord, how are you going to navigate me through this conflict that I'm having with my family or with my friends? He wants to lead us. And so God often works through providence. I think the other reason that God likes to work through providence and not the miraculous is so that we'll only recognize his work if we're looking for it. That's another thing that he likes to do. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water? and his disciples were toiling in the boat, the Bible says that Jesus made like he would pass by. In other words, he wasn't going to try to get their attention, and he wasn't walking towards them. He was just walking to the other side. And it wasn't until they cried out and said, Lord, help, that, you know, that's the Lord, that then the Lord intervened. Same with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead? And he disguised himself, and he was talking with them, and he was elaborating the scripture to them. And, and they didn't even know that it was Jesus. And it says that he made like he would keep going. But they said, no, come and eat with us. And then he went in. I think the Lord does that so often. He providentially moves in our lives, but we don't even recognize it until we turn around and we begin to think, wait a minute, how did that all work out? How did God do that and work it out in my life? And, and, and how many times have you missed it? Have I missed it? And I think he does it that way on purpose so that we will begin to recognize the things that happen in our life and then see the fingerprints of God in our circumstances. See, miracles don't produce faith. But when we see God working in that way, moving in our lives, it does. And so he providentially moves in this woman's life. Um, Now, why is this story here? I like to ask that question before we go forward and see what we're going to see. Why does God begin the chapter this way? I think it's important. Because we're about to see the nation plummet into darkness. I think God wants us to clearly see in the scripture that he is going to provide for and protect those that are faithful to him, even in times of decline and darkness in a nation. And I think it's fitting in our day that we recognize that and that we understand that because we're not necessarily absolved from what might be coming upon our country even in these days as we watch things unravel and we see people turn from God and policies become more and more hostile towards the things of God but God will be faithful to protect his people even in the midst of that I was reading Proverbs this week and I stumbled upon these verses in uh, Proverbs 3 I thought they'd be encouraging to you Um, Proverbs chapter 3 Um, talking about the the ways of God and, and the call for us to walk in God's ways. He says, my son, do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they shall be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk in your way safely and your foot shall not stumble. When you lie down, you shall not be afraid. Yea, you shall lie down and your sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid for sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being taken. And I think God, as a word from the Lord for us tonight, that we understand that whatever days we find ourselves in, whether it be today or as we move into the future, is that God's going to be faithful to keep us and preserve us. He brought this woman through seven years of famine, and she lost nothing she lost nothing she didn't even lose the produce of her land that nobody got she even got that back even though the land didn't produce it and that's interesting for me uh to think about now the rest of chapter eight give to us four things that happen in the nation that are a sure sign of backsliding and they're true for nations and they're true for people too and the first thing that happens here when when a, when backsliding is happening when people are moving away from the Lord, is that he stirs up and strengthens their enemies against them. Watch verse 7. It says, And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, that's the king's right hand, Take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and he took a present with him, even every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels load. Can you imagine that? I mean, here you are, Elisha, you're there staying at the Motel 6 in in Damascus and all of a sudden 40 camels pulled up laden with goods. And it says, and he came and stood before him, and he said, thy son, Ben-Hadad, or Hadad, the king of Syria. Isn't it? do you see that, thy son? Remember Ben-Hadad? He went and he tried to kill Elisha. How many times? You know, and now he's sick, and now he's going, oh, would you pray for me? You know, it's like the guy at work, right? He hates you because you're a Christian. He wants you dead. is doing everything to sabotage your career and your life and makes your life absolutely miserable. But then he gets a bad diagnosis and he comes to you and says, would you pray for me? Would you tell the people at your church or would you pray for me in church? That's exactly what's happening here. Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, go and say unto him, you may certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. The idea here is, is that yes, he's going to recover from the disease, but no, he's not going to live. It's going to be another cause. And then he settled his countenance steadfastly. So he zeroes in on this guy with a stare that pierces right to his soul until he was ashamed and the man of God began to weep. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds will you set on fire, and their young men will you slay with the sword, and you will dash their children, and you will rip up their women with child. And Hazael said, But what? Is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has showed me that you shall surely be king over Syria." Now I can only imagine the amount of wisdom or insight that was given to Elisha in this moment that he stares like this at Haziah. I mean, he has to see a lot of things. He not only sees the corruption that's in the heart of Haziah and the hatred that he has for the Jews, but he also has to be able to supernaturally see into the backsliding and the turning away of the people of Israel. Because if God had protected Israel for so long from Syria, and now God was going to lift that protection so that Hazael will be able to do these things, then that means that there's something real dark going on even in the borders of Israel. When Elisha sees all of what's going on on the two fronts, both at home and in Hazael, he begins to weep as he realizes the dark days that lie ahead. It says, so he departed from Elisha, And he came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that you should surely recover. Now that probably greatly encouraged Ben-Hadad as he realized, Oh good, I'm gonna, I'm on the upswing. Elisha's been pretty good so far with his predictions. And it came to pass on the morrow or the next day that he, that's Hazael, that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and he spread it on his face so that he died and Hazael then reigned in his stead God raises up the enemies of Israel against uh, them and he strengthens them now up to this point Syria has been subdued and silenced remember all the incursions in our last couple of studies that Syria attempted to war against Israel and every time they were confounded to the point where they were finally put down. They realized that they cannot beat Israel and they just settled it in their mind that Israel was there to stay. But now they're in a place where God is actually strengthening this Hazael to be the ruler uh, over Syria. Um, Remember when Elijah the prophet. Remember Elijah who called down fire from heaven? Remember when he got discouraged and he he was up on Mount Sinai there and he was saying, Lord, I just want to die. I can't go on anymore. This is just too much for me. And the Lord revealed himself to Elijah there. There was the earthquake and the rocks tore and there was a fire and, and then there was the still small voice. And the Lord spoke to Elijah there and really restored him. But there was a prophecy that was given to Elijah at that time. God gave him some instructions. He said, I want you to go back to Israel, Elijah, and here's what I want you to do. Number one is that you're going to anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. Number two, you're going to anoint Jehu to be the king over Israel. And number three, you're going to anoint Elisha to be the prophet in place of you. Those were the three instructions that God gave to Elijah. Hazael, king of Syria. Jehu king over Israel which we'll see later in our study tonight God willing and Elisha to be prophet in your room now Elisha has long now since been prophet in the place of Elijah but Jehu hasn't come on the scene and this is the first now that we're reading about this man Hazael but it's something that God already foreknew that he was going to do in raising up the enemies of Israel against uh them in the time with their that they're backslidden now listen Christian. One of the ways, and I say one of, one of the ways that you can recognize when you're in a backslidden state is when God begins to strengthen and raise up and stir up your enemies against you. It's something that happens throughout the Bible. Now you say, well, why does God do that? Is it because He's punishing me or because He's angry with me? No. The Bible says that He chastens or disciplines those that he loves and his desire and design behind it is always to bring you back closer to him and so sometimes god will raise up adversity amongst your peers or in your family or in your friendship circles as a way of knocking on your heart and saying hey you're trusting too much in the outward or leaning too much on the arm of the flesh or you've drifted from me and it's time to get back so does that mean that every time you're having trouble with another person, that that means you're backslidden and God's trying to knock on your heart? No. We live in a world where there's conflict and there's troubles. But here's what the Bible does say, Proverbs 16:7. It says that when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. And we've seen that with Israel thus far. Even their enemies, Moab, Edom, Syria, Lebanon, all of these groups that hate Israel still hate Israel, but as long as they're walking close with the Lord, they're at peace with him. And so God stirs up their enemies, and we see it here in the story. Now, before I go any further, let me just quickly remind you of a couple of things, because we've been in Elisha so long, and now we break back into kings, so to speak. Remember, the nation of Israel has been divided. There's ten tribes to the north that are referred to as Israel, And there's two tribes to the south that are referred to as Judah. And so you have Israel and you have Judah. And so we're going to read this one was the king of Israel and we'll read this one is the king of Judah. Now also remember that the kings of Israel, as a general rule, are pretty evil. These are the bad guys. These are the ones that, you know, are turning away from God. They're leading the nation into idolatry. That's the kings of Israel. That's, um where you have Jeroboam. Remember, he made the golden calves that that became became a stumbling block for Israel. Ahab, the the husband of Jezebel, they were from Israel. Their sons and offspring, all from Ahab, they're all Israel. Judah, the descendants of King David, there was a couple of bad kings, but then you had Asa, who was a good king, brought the people close to the Lord. Then his son, Jehoshaphat, who we'll see again tonight, he's a good king. And so, the Judah kings, they're the line of David. So Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And that's important to just reestablish um, moving forward in this thing. And then just one other thing um, as way of a, a warning, really, more than anything else, is that the next couple of chapters are pretty gory. You know, and I'm not sorry for that because it's the Bible, you know, it's God's word, but... Just so that you've been warned, uh, some of the things that we see in these chapters are pretty intense uh, and pretty crazy, as is often the case. And so in verse 16, um, number two way that you know that you're in a backslidden state is when there's corruption in the throne room. It says, and in the fifth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab. So we're dealing with here um Jehoram, or we're actually dealing with the king of Judah, it says the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, began to reign. And thus the confusion begins. There's two Jehorams. There's a Jehoram in Israel, the son of Ahab, and there's a Jehoram in Judah, the son of Jehoshaphat. We're dealing with Jehoram here, the son of Judah, uh, Je- the son of Jehoshaphat. It says he began to reign. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David, his servant's sake, as he had promised to him to give him always a light and to his children. And thus what we see here with this man, um, Jehoram, is that we see compromise that then led to corruption. The compromise was in his marriage. He married the daughter of Ahab. Now this is supposed to be one of the godly kings, the lamp that God had given to Israel, the descendants of David. His grandfather was Asa, who was a godly man. His his father was Jehoshaphat, again, a godly man. But now here's a man who's been handed that torch, called to be a lamp and a light unto Israel, and he gets involved with a no doubt beautiful young woman who happens to be the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the pagan woman that brought Israel into bondage. And what it is for him is that it is a point of compromise. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation that we are, as Christians, people of God, to be equally yoked with believers. That's what we're called to do. We're not to get ourselves involved relationally, at least on the level of a marriage, with someone who is not in the Lord. And the reason for that is because it will always drag us in the wrong direction. I had to, uh, just this past week, change the well pump at my house. And I know that, you know, you don't feel sorry for me because that's something that everybody has to do uh, every so many years and whatnot. But I'm, I'm definitely a weekend warrior. I do these things myself uh, with pride and with joy oftentimes. I, I like working, doing this kind of stuff. So don't think for a minute I'm complaining. But I learned something. While well, I was changing the well pump at my house um, and, and i 'm going to try to give you a quick lesson because it applies to our study here. Well pumps do not run on uh, normal electricity like your hair dryer does or your television set. they run on double the electricity, so everything normally runs on one ten or one hundred fifteen Well pumps run on two hundred twenty or two thirty you know they double it up, and so in order to get that much electricity down to the well pump you have to have uh two hot feeds that both are feeding that 115 or that 110 to the well pump and the 115 plus the 115 on the two different lines get the 220 or 230 to the well pump in order for it to run okay and that's essential you need that because it's it's got to pump water uh, up 100 and something feet from the ground and get it into your house and so it needs uh, quite a bit of juice now i learned this i learned that if a well pump, and this is, you know, newer, improved technology, only gets 115, in other words, only one of those two wires is actually feeding electricity, then the well pump won't work. It has a safety mechanism that causes it to not turn on because the pump will burn out prematurely if it's only getting half of that uh, amount of electricity that it needs. And and I I was thinking about that as I was going through this text and, and how it relates to this whole idea of being equally yoked together. See, the Bible says that when God created Adam and Eve, that he made them male and female. He took something from Adam, gave it to the woman, then he put them together and he called their name Adam. In other words, the completed representation of man made in the image of God is the man and the woman linked together. But what happens when you have a believer and a non-believer, you have one person who's alive. You have 115 or 110 volts. And then you have one person that has a blown fuse. Okay, they're not really alive. They're there. The wire exists. All the hardware is present, but they're really dead. You can touch it. You can do anything you want to it. It doesn't feel anything because it's dead. And so when a believer that's alive tries to link with an unbeliever that's dead, then you don't get all of the voltage that you need to live the kind of life in blessing that God wants you to live. Do you understand? And so the pump shuts down, so to speak. And so God looks at His people and He says, let the dead bury their dead, let the dead marry their dead, but for you, the plan that I have for your life and what I want to do within your life, you've got to have 240 or 230 or 220. You guys get the idea of the math there, you know. If you put a volt mean around those things, it's all over the place. So, you know. But you get the idea is God says, listen, don't compromise in this thing because you're always going to be pulled the wrong direction. Missionary dating doesn't work. Oh, I'll get him saved. Doesn't work. Doesn't happen. It goes the other way. And we see it happen here with this man, Jehoram. He's supposed to be godly, gets involved. I'm sure she was a knockout. I'm sure he could justify it any way that he wanted to. Nevertheless, look what happened. It says at the end of verse 18, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And compromise always leads to corruption. Now the throne room in the governmental sense is obviously clear. It's Jehoram and his decision to marry Ahab's daughter. But for you and me, we all have a throne room as well. It's in our mind. The mind is always the high place in the life of any individual. It's where we make decisions. It's where the governing of our lives takes place. It's in our mind. And compromise always starts in the mind. It never starts with actions. We always compromise first in the way we think. But compromise, that is doing things contrary to what God says, will always lead to corruption. And corruption will lead to more compromise and a cycle begins. And that's what we see taking place as an intermarriage and an intermingling between these two lines corrupts the nation even yet further. But God says, I'm not going to destroy Judah for David's sake because I promised to give him a lamp. And so corruption in the throne room. Third sign of backsliding is a loss of territory. It says, in, in his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. So Edom had been paying taxes to Israel, but now they say, no, we're not doing it. So Joram went over to Zaire and all the chariots with him, and he arose by night, and he smote the Edomites, which compassed him about, and the captains of their chariots, and the people fled into their tents. Yet Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. They saw the success of Edom's revolt, and they said, well, we're not paying taxes either. And it says, in all the rest of Acts of Jehoram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? What's this telling us? It's telling us that Israel had had authority over enemy territory. They were subservient to Israel. They were paying taxes to them. But Israel lost that authority in the time of their backsliding. They no longer had the strength to control it. And thus they lost the advantage of having victory in those areas of their life. The same thing happens to us when we backslide. Territory that God gave us long ago as we walked with him, as we grew in him. Things, areas of our life where we got victories over the sins of our flesh or the lusts of our flesh and of our mind. God gives us great ground in our zealous years walking with him as we study the word of God, as we discipline our lives, as we walk the narrow path. But as our hearts begin to cool, if we grow distant from the Lord, we find that the territory that we took that was in under taxation to us, we find that we no longer have the strength to hold out in those areas of our life. And we lose the authority that we once had within our life. It's always a sign of a backslidden life. And so verse 24, Jehoram this is the son of Jehoshaphat, Judah, slept or died with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David and Ahaziah, now his son, reigned in his stead. Isn't that nice? He named him uh, the same thing as what will be in the kingdom of Israel just to make it easy for us. What's the legacy of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, a man who compromised and it led to corruption? He's known for three things. Number one, he married Jezebel's daughter. Number two, he caused Israel's economy to really tank. And number three, he had an affair with his wife's aunt. Uh, Watch this, verse 25. It says, in the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, begin to reign. So this is about Ahaziah, the, the, the grandson of Jehoshaphat. He was 22 years old. When he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, the king of Israel. Now, this is where the she is really going to help you, because you're going to see that Omri was Ahab's father, okay? Which means that Athaliah, his mother, was Ahab's sister. So she's the sister of paganism, all right? But wait. His father, Jehoram, this is where it gets crazy, right? You're like, whoa, watch this. (laughs) Jehoram married Ahab's daughter, but also had an affair with his sister's aunt, which was Ahab's sister. Because if Ahaziah is the son of Athaliah, then that means he's not the son of Ahab's daughter. You get it? You see it? Follow it through. You, the, the whole point in the thing, is you begin to spin your head around the thing, is that it was weird. Okay? There's just real weird, crazy things that are going on in here. And, but what you see even more important than that is that the line that God is seeking to preserve, the line of Judah to bring forth Christ, is becoming very, very, very corrupted. And that's the problem with what's going on. And it says that he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. And he went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, the king of Syria, in Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Jehoram. And so the fourth thing that happens uh, when you're in a backslidden state is that you begin to lose battles that you once won. You see here these two kings, the king of Judah and the king of Israel, which are supposed to be separate, but now they're kind of linked by marriage. These guys are kind of cousins. And here they get together and they decide we're going to go to war against Hazael, this newly crowned, sired king, and we're going to take him out. And they lose. Remember how many times they had defeated Syria previously? And now they find even with a united front, they cannot do it. It's the same thing that happens, again, in our lives. That when we're in a backslidden state, areas where we used to do battle and win, we find that we do battle and we lose the same way. So verse 29, it says that King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel, which is a a province of Samaria, the capital. And you need to know that because it becomes a central point moving forward. Of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, the king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. And so now these two ungodly kings are together. And so Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets. And he said unto him, gird up your loins, that means get yourself together, and take this box of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you come there, look out there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Oh, here we go. Ready? Remember Jehu? He was the one that Elijah was told to anoint king back in 1 Kings chapter 19 on Mount Sinai. Here he is. He's now in the text. We're told that he's the son of Jehoshaphat, but it's a different Jehoshaphat. It's not Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa. It's Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. So don't confuse the two. And go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, tarry not. So get the message out, pour the oil on his head and then depart. Now, I don't know why it never comes out any reason why. Maybe it was just for the, the strength of the impact of the message delivered. So the young man, even the young man the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all of us? And he said, To thee, O captain. And so he arose, and he went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. So there's the position or the title that's given to Jehu. And you shall smite the house of Ahab, thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. That's his mission. So his position is king, his mission from God is to destroy the house of Ahab. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And so then he opened the door and he fled. So he delivers the message and he leaves. Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his lord, his fellow soldiers, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? Why did this crazy kook come and talk to you today? And he said unto them, You know the man and his communication. He, he basically says, You know him. He likes to talk. He's, he didn't want anything. And they said, It is false. You're, you're a liar. Tell us. Come on. What is it? And he said, Thus and thus spake he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then they hasted and they took every man his garment and they put, under him, they put it under him on the top of the stairs and below with trumpets saying that Jehu is king. Now what's taking place in this is that God is going to remove the cancer from Israel. See God doesn't like to judge. The Bible says that, that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked nor in the day of judgment. God always will preserve and breathe life into anything that he can. The Bible says that a smoking coal, he won't put it out. He'll fan it back into flame. A bruised reed, he won't break it. That's not his heart. It's always to heal and to restore. And so God's going to remove the cancer from Israel, and he's raising up Jehu as the chemo. That's what's happening. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Jehoram. Now, this is the Jehoram who's the son of Ahab. Remember, that's his mission, destroy the house of Ahab. Now, Joram had, had kept Ramath Gilead, he and all Israel, because Hazael, king of Syria. But King Jehoram was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, the king of Syria. And Jehu said, if it be your minds, or if you're smart enough, he says this to his servants, Then let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. So the two kings are together, the king of Judah and the king of Israel in the same room. And there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Jehoram said, Take a horseman, and send it to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So there went one on horseback to meet him, and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the watchman told, saying, The messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. Then he sent out a second messenger on horseback, which came to them, and said, Thus saith the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchmen told, saying, he came even unto them and comes not again. So two watchmen now, or two messengers have been sent to inquire. Why are you coming? Why are you driving like this? And both times Jehu says, you better fall in line behind me. And they both do. And so the watchman said, he came to them and he comes not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So apparently this guy had a reputation uh, for speeding tickets in Jezreel because they recognize it, they see it. And Jehoram said, then make ready. And so his chariot was made ready and Jehoram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, went out each in his chariot and they went out against Jehu and met him in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, isn't that interesting? Remember Naboth? He was the one who Ahab wanted his vineyard because, or his land because it was joined next to his garden. And he wanted Nahab, uh, Naboth's land for a garden. And he had him killed at the council of Jezebel. And it just so happens, again, that it's in his land that they meet. And it came to pass that when Jehoram saw Jehu, that he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And Jehoram turned his hands and fled and said to Ahaziah, there is treachery, O oh Ahaziah. I wish I could have seen that scene. You know, the guy basically turns white as a ghost, drops his stuff and just runs uh, while he wets himself. And so Jehu... Drew a bow with his full strength. And he smote Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Now, amazingly, that's exactly what Elijah, the prophet, said would happen. And then said Jehu to Bidkar, his captain, Take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. So evidently at that time, Jehu was part of Ahab's company. And when Elijah went forth to rebuke Ahab for murdering uh, Naboth and stealing his vineyard, Elijah said, you're going to die in the same field that you killed Naboth in. And here we see that it happens, even as he said, and Jehu recognizes it. He says, go bury him over there. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord, and I will requite thee in this plat of ground, says the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into that plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Ger, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his sepulchre with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. So now he kills two of the aggressors. He kills both Ahab's son, son, and he kills Ahaziah, um, who is um, the one from Judah. And so they both die in this. Jeroboam is killed and then Ahaziah is also killed. And now Jezebel's next, verse 30. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her face, and she tied her head, and she looked out at the window. So she dresses herself up. Evidently, she was stunningly beautiful, um, even into old age. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace, who slew his master? So she t- basically tries to scare him in the whole thing. Zimri, you remember back a few uh you know, several weeks actually, that he was, uh, he got drunk, he assassinated his master, and then he tried to launch a rebellion, but it didn't, didn't work, so he ended up burning himself down in the house. And so she brings that up and she says, Hey, do you think you're going to succeed? But he evidently wasn't moved by that. It says that he lifted up his face to the window and he said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. Now, <laughs> I actually laughed out loud when I read that this week because, you know, here's Jezebel, this beautiful woman. And the only guys that are willing to be men in this thing are guys that really aren't men. You know, if you understand what a eunuch is, you know, they're unmoved basically by the seduction of Jezebel because they can't be moved by the seduction of Jezebel. You know, so they stick their heads up and they're like, hey, we'll be on your side. And so he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and they trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink. I like this guy. I mean, I'm starting to picture Arnold or Samson. You know, like, this guy is tough, you know. And he said, go and see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her. And the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands, now amazingly, uh, the, even as it was said that she would be eaten of the dogs and, and isn 't it interesting um, it says here that the only things that even the dogs wouldn 't eat were her head, her feet, and the palms of her hands. The head is where decisions are made, the feet is what carries you where you go, and your hands is what you do, and even the dogs which in the Bible are spoken of as, uh, as, as having absolutely no uh, feeling or emotion at all. Even they wouldn't touch the parts of Jezebel uh, that, that dictated who she was and what she did. Wherefore, when they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field, in the portion of Jezreel uh, and so that they shall not say this is Jezebel they're not going to be able to build an altar or erect a monument to who she is she will be completely unrecognizable Um, we'll stop there for tonight we were supposed to get through another chapter but uh, that's not going to happen father we thank you tonight for your word we thank you lord as we see uh, your involvement in the nation of Israel lord that you Uh, have a purpose and a plan for all that you do and lord even as we began tonight looking at that verse that says that known by god are all his works from the beginning of the creation we see your hand lord in israel in this time and what's taking place with them as a nation and as an entity and we see that you always reach out your arms and call people back to yourself and tonight lord as we look at these verses and we see your heart towards those who are faithful to you, that you'll preserve them in times of judgment. And Lord, we see your heart towards the backslider, that you will give warning, and you'll give warning, and you'll give warning. And Lord, you always have it in your heart and in your mind to call the backslider back to yourself, that they not experience the pain of going through what sin brings upon a life. And so, Lord, tonight, as we've looked at these words and we've seen this text, and now we see, Lord, the cancer being rooted out, you tell us, Lord, that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord. And so it's our prayer tonight, Lord, that as we sit, as we consider and think, Lord, would you shine the searchlight of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts? Lord, would you speak to us that some of us have grown distant or cold? That some of us, our prayer life has grown stale and stagnant. Oh Lord, would you call us back tonight? Would you whisper by your Spirit in our ear and say, Come back to me, my son and my daughter. Call again upon me. Experience my tender mercies. Lay your sin again at the foot of the cross of my son and be cleansed and be made whole. Lord, would you again remind us of your great love. and That you were made sin for us. That our sins might be put away upon the cross. And so Lord, tonight if there be anything in us, a secret allegiance to Jezebel, an altar set up, a false altar, if there be roots of paganism deep within us, Lord, if there be the growing again of things that long since should be dead and killed. Lord, we ask right now that you would give us the grace to confess, to humble ourselves before you and to repent, to be made whole. So strengthen us, Lord, and revive us according to your power. We know that your word always accomplishes what you sent it to do. and We believe that tonight, Lord, your desire is that we lay aside those things that have separated us from you and that we be made near again. So please, Father, fill us again. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.